0: You're listening to In the Belly of the Beast, a collaboration between University of St. Thomas faculty in American Culture and Difference, English, Justice and Peace Studies and Theology, and hosted by Initiatives in Faith and Praxis. In the Belly of the Beast is a space for multidisciplinary conversations and critical inquiry about a range of topics from cultural and literary studies to theology, social theory, and politics. My name is Rai Sigelko. I am the Director of Initiatives in Faith and Praxis here at St. Thomas. I also teach in the Theology Department and uh, American Culture and Difference as well. And I'm here with my colleague, Kanishka.
1: Thanks, Roy. And I just want to say what a thrill it is to be here with my friends and colleagues, Todd, Amy, and Rai. So my name is Kanishka Chowdhury, and I teach in the English department, and I'm the director of the American Culture and Difference Program at St. Thomas, and I have been teaching uh, in various different fields for a very long time, so I'm very excited for the opportunity to have these interdisciplinary discussions with my colleagues. So I will pass on to Amy, my colleague.
2: Hi, y'all. This is Amy Finnegan. i grateful to be with the folks in this room and the folks that are listening. I am a sociologist and I teach in Justice and Peace Studies and I'm also affiliated with the American Culture and Difference Program.
3: Hello, my name is Todd Lawrence. I teach in the English department at the University of St. Thomas. I teach African-American literature and expressive culture. I teach folklore studies, ethnography, and cultural studies. I don't think I said that twice. Um, and I'm also the director of the English grad program at the University of St. Thomas. I too am very happy to be here with my friends talking about all the things that we're going to talk about over the course of this podcast. So today, because this is
0: our first episode, I figured we could go around the room and have a conversation about a number of questions that we've prepared that each of us will answer. We hope that this will serve as a, as a, as a kind of introduction for our listeners So our first question uh, today, and and we'll start with Kanishka Chowdhury, um, is can you say something about your research, your teaching, and how that might connect with your activist passions at the moment?
1: Yeah, thanks, Ray. Um, So I've actually spent, like a lot of us, the last year and a half in uh, social isolation. So it's given me the chance to not just read quite a bit, but also to think about the state of our world and uh, certainly the pandemic, climate change, uh, racial justice. These are some of the issues we've all been thinking about. But I would say at the moment, um, I'm, I'm pretty interested in one topic that um, I'm hoping to do more with, and that is the issue of migration and looking at the border as a sort of constitutive space, not as a sort of geographical line on on a map, but as a way of thinking about social relations and how those social relations impact the way power functions in our society, how we categorize people, how we uh, put people into certain kinds of formations, governance, as as Foucault would call it. Um, So at the moment, I think that is where... A lot of my reading and research is going into. Clearly, we know that this is a terrible time for millions of people who are being affected by the pandemic, by wars, by civil unrest. And uh, the the figure is that 70 million people are on the move, and many of them are desperately looking for refuge, even while certainly in the Western countries, uh, borders are being shut down. So I come to this from not just a perspective of another human being, but someone who's trying to understand it through the lens of political economy, through the lens of culture, through the lens of social studies in general. So I'd say for the time being, that's probably enough. Uh, There are other things I'm reading and thinking through, but... That is, you know, I think, a really urgent issue at the moment because I think if you think about migration and immigration, inevitably you have to think about climate change, you have to think about incarceration, you have to think about gender justice, you have to think about all kinds of things that are related to the issue of the border. So I think, um, you know, again, it's a it's an extremely wide-ranging uh, subject. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you.
2: So I think as a sociologist, um, sociology, we think a lot about how power operates in society. I've always been drawn to questions around social movements and how collectives try to shift power in society. I have done some work on the white savior complex, like how white bodied folks participate in efforts to address social problems. but. Oftentimes, not really shifting power, more being more about performance, or more about sort of a sense of being good and right, about being extraordinary, about not really having to like think deeply about why these problems exist in the first place. And that's still an interest of mine. Um, I think, as a white-bodied person who's interested in thinking about social problems and 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 working to address them, I think it feels very personal. I I would say like as as like a research area of scholarship, I think I'm shifting from that. I have been grateful to have participated with a collective of folks focused on health that are interested in thinking upstream about like what really determines health and thinking about structures in society like capitalism and settler colonialism and those histories and ongoing processes that have tremendous influence on health. I think that's also brought me more recently to think about issues of like I appreciate what Kanishka just said like intersectional issues around abolition of police in prison and thinking about safety in new ways and how that's connected to health. Similar, how I'm very interested in and trying to think about what's happening here in Minnesota with water protectors and and how that also is a, out of a commitment to health and to supporting life. And then the last thing I'll say is I I think is like a another kind of area or body is more, maybe more of an approach, but I think you spoke to it in the title of, of your program, Praxis. And so I am interested in research and teaching that can connect to maybe I'm going to try to do a community-based participatory action research project. So like, how do I, how do we build knowledge that's useful for people like today? <laughs> um, I'm interested in that approach. And then similarly, I think that kind of Praxis fits into like thinking about like, my own teaching and how does like I wanna be like a reflective practitioner in the classroom and kind of thinking about how how am I like helping folks think about and myself think about phenomena in the world, think about theories in new ways, but also how is there like praxis happening in the classroom and how can I be a reflective practitioner in my teaching? So yeah. Thank you.
3: So I am uh I'm a I'm a folklorist first and foremost, I guess now on a Bachelor of Folklorists, and I'm also an ethnographer. So in terms of what my research is or my research areas, because I focus on the methodology as opposed to the subject, I can do research in lots of different areas, because really ethnography is about radical listening and listening to what regular people have to say about their own experiences um, in particular moments in time. And so my work is, you know, sort of spanned working with a town, um Pinhook in Southeast Missouri that was destroyed in two thousand eleven by an act of the federal government to, you know, what I'm doing now, which is I think has a kind of qualitative or ethnographic dimension to it, which is the urban art mapping project, which I sort of think of as being this is working with street art and basically creating a street art database that consists of images of street art that um, came up around the Twin Cities and really around the world. Our database has become um, global following George Floyd's murder. And we think of these as expressions, vernacular expressions, people are sort of putting into the streets in a way of having conversations with each other. And so our job as documenters and preservers of this is, or collectors of this, is to sort of listen to what people are saying through these visual forms of expressions. So it's a short way of saying that my research is whatever I'm interested in at this particular moment. I've done a lot of different things. And uh, the one thing that sort of ties it all together usually is some element of vernacular and of ethnographic kind of attention to the expressions that people are willing to share with me.
0: It's so great to hear all of your, your interests. For me, I think these things, this connection between teaching and research and activism or organizing have become really intertwined for me, I think, in part because of my time spent as a pastor. I served as a, as a pastor at a local church in Minneapolis, a Mennonite church in, in the Seward neighborhood for several years. And um, it was after my graduate studies. And so actually I was just finishing up my, my graduate studies as, a, as I was a pastor. But I think through that work, it pushed me to, to think about theology more practically as opposed to just a matter of kind of intellectual or speculative kind of exercise or something. And part of that was, uh, you know, of course, my congregation thinking about how to to communicate um, kind of a practical theology. A lot of it, too, is my own sort of, um, yeah, how, how to actually live in the world, right, as a Christian or as a, as a pastor, as a, as, a, as a faithful person. So I got very involved with uh, Spanish-speaking immigrants here in the Twin Cities from, from various regions in Latin America, which was very formative for me. And, of course, Latin America is also the birthplace of of what's called liberation theology, and so my research and teaching has been deeply shaped by reflection on, I guess, my own praxis, reflection on what it is that I'm sort of given to do in a particular moment or a particular space. Right now I'm working on a book that is really just a revision of my dissertation, although it's a, a kind of a rewrite of my dissertation it focuses on uh, apocalyptic dimensions of, of liberation theologies throughout history. But my next book project is actually closer to, to what Kanishka is interested in. I think it's um, I'm more focused on, I want it to be focused on movement and, and migration and the systems and structures that prohibit movement and migration, that prohibit mobility. So I'm, I've become very interested in, in walls and barbed wire and the apparatus of the border, but also really about the way people not only find ways to make a life despite these systems, but how people find ways to collectively struggle to dismantle these systems, and how they do so within the context of of faith and and hope. So I guess I'm also interested in, in kind of the ethnographic, I think, too, in that what you talked about with radical listening, has become really important to me. So yeah, I teach courses on migration and um, I've been teaching courses on liberation theology. So yeah. So our next question is, and we can, maybe we'll reverse it. We'll start with Todd maybe. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, it kind of gets, it go, It asks you to go a little deeper into reflecting on your own perspective and your own kind of um, professional development. But would you say there is a particular intellectual heritage or a, a lineage of sorts or a combination of several that really influences the work that you do?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Several. I mean, I don't think I have time to enumerate them all here, nor do I maybe even have I sort of like understood what they all are, but I would say, you know, as a, I'm a I'm a person who ended up in academia quite accidentally, I think, and there's probably a lot of people who are like that. For me, what that means is that I just sort of found myself in you know, a graduate program after undergraduate. I wasn't a particularly good undergraduate student, um, not in ability, but in um, application. I didn't really read or study all that well when I was an undergraduate, but when I got to graduate school that I sort of backed into, I was sort of like, oh, that people take this seriously here and there's things that I need to learn. I got to catch up, you know? And so I I sort of at each level found myself trying to catch up with the sort of basics of what everybody else already seemed to know. But when I got to a PhD school at university of Missouri, I did not go there to study folklore, but I fell in with the folklorists because if I'm being honest, number one, I, number one, they were the most fun people to hang out with. But there was something that appealed to me in that, they were thinking about, talking about, studying things that were had already been a part of my life that didn't seem foreign to me. One of the um, most important people there that was an influence on me is Anand Prahlad, who became my dissertation director, and he was a scholar of Proverbs, and, uh, which I think to a lot of people seems like a sort of, I don't know, insignificant, kind of not very important thing. I don't know what people think about it. But to me, the idea that you could study Proverbs was, was mind blowing, was earth shattering for me, like literally sort of blew my world up. And I started to understand that, oh, my dad is a proverb master. And, you know, my grandma, I mean, like these things that they were saying that, you know, they never seemed insignificant to me, but I didn't, they didn't seem important to other people. And that there was a whole sort of like subfield in academia where people were studying and allowing value to that kind of um, verbal art. They were calling it art. And uh, that just kind of like blew me away. And then I started to, to see that in folklore, we could value and show the value of things in everyday life that normally didn't get paid attention to by most people. And think about and theorize the ways that those things were important. I mean, folklore is essentially what the things that people say, make, know, believe, and do traditionally speaking, right? And that's like everything. And so much of it sort of falls in the crevices of of time, you know, we just don't pay attention to it. So for me that was really important. So folklore and then studying ethnography, that became really important to me because it in some ways gave legitimacy to a part of my own life that was important to me but I didn't know how to I didn't know that it could be important and I didn't know how to sort of think of it as important. So I think for me being around folklore and and you know, I will admit that folklore it has a troubling history and is in lots of ways still is. It can be a troubling field, unlike other academic fields. So I'm very much critical of it. But there's just some way for me that it opened up the possibilities of what I could do as a researcher, as an academic, the things I could teach, the things that I could pursue and think about. And so that's been really influential for me. What about you, Amy?
2: Well, first, I just really I loved hearing what you said, Todd, about how you kind of found yourself into academia and higher education. And I think for me, I, I think and I'd love to hear what y'all have to say. I think that going to college was a time of awakening and it was a time of like thinking about the world in a more critical way. I took classes that I had like never You know, I took classes in women's studies. I took classes in African-American studies. I tried to really learn Spanish. I spent time in Chile and India and St. Louis. And I think it was just like a real, like I was, I had grown up in a pretty homogenous suburb of the Twin Cities and it was a time of awakening and and making connections. And I loved the questions that like that time offered. And so I think for me, I kind of wanted to find myself back into that space, like the, the space of asking questions about why things are and how can we shift them? How, wh- what are the ways to address to make a more just world? So that's kind of how I found myself into into higher education or into university life. I in terms of intellectual heritage or lineage, I, I draw from a lot of different pieces. I think originally like social movement literature, sociologists. I think as I've i made connections with a lot of health worker folks, I was introduced to this whole tradition of social medicine, which has been influential for me. And then I, I got into peace and conflict studies in graduate school. And there's like there's a whole I mean, that links to some of this because that was sort of like Johan Galtung and starting to think about structural violence and how violence is not just what we see, but it's what lives in society. Um and I think now I'm just really influenced. Like the books that I'm interested in reading are, are folks that are out in the world. So like Winona LaDuke's new book on water protectors and Miriam Kaba's book about abolition and like folks who are thinking deeply and they're acting in the world. And that, that lineage is very, very inspiring to me in terms of um, moving my questions forward, I think.
0: Well, you can,
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so impressed with these two narratives about intellectual lineage, because I think it emphasizes how incredibly complicated and accidental lineages are. It's not something that you have a guidebook and you just follow it through blindly, but it's almost a process of discovery. And, you know, speaking to Amy's point about the, the sort of significance of it, you know, go back to Marx's thesis on Feuerbach, right? Philosophers have so far interpreted the world. The point, however, is to change it. And I think when I think about knowledge in the end, what has animated me constantly is not just that it helps me make sense of the world. I mean, that's what ideas do, but it gives us a sort of guide to how we may act, how we might combine together to be collective agents of change. And so my interest in sort of the kind of work I do, which has these traditional markers, you know, post-colonial studies, cultural studies, Marxist theory. These are the sort of trajectories of my, my work. But they often seem very incidental in terms of how those fields came to be and what made them and so on and so forth. What, what really, again, animates me is, is where a lot of these thinkers that I admire and read came from. So the, the sort of trajectory of someone like Césaire Funno, Walter Rodney, C.L.R. James, you know, Cabral. All of these people were deeply immersed in the real political and material issues of their own societies. And the other thing that uh, attracts me to a certain kind of intellectual work is internationalism. And that is to say, I, I really think it's important to think locally, but also to think in a larger international context. So I've always been interested in trying to understand how smaller issues are related to the way imperialism works, the way uh, global raciality works, and so on and so forth. It's interesting that Rai talked about mobility, because that also is is, is an interest of mine, and I've been thinking a lot about it, and how much uh, capital has this contradiction of restricting mobility, but also requiring mobility, Right. On the one hand, goods have to move constantly, people have to move, Uh, laborers have to move, but capital also works by keeping people in place. In fact, if you look at what happened after the Civil War in in the U.S., freed slaves were unable to move because they wanted to capture their labor, so there were all these sort of vagrancy laws and stuff like that. So I think, to cut a long story short, uh, what keeps getting me interested is how people make sense of the material world they live in and how do ideas help us see that material world in, a, in different formations. So yes, there are sort of approved disciplines and approved methodologies that I could cite here. But I think for me, knowledge is a more kind of organic process where it, it develops as, as the world changes as social relations change. So I'll leave it at that. I, I don't want to give a too, too bad an answer about having particular people or particular names, even though I did name certain people and, and they do remain very important to me. Uh, the I'll just end by saying that I've been reading a lot of Du Bois and I think that everybody should read Du Bois because he has so much to say about not just the world he lived in, but the world we are navigating today. So leave it at that.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. I think for me, you know, it's interesting in, in a discipline like theology, it sort of matters where you go to church actually, in terms of your intellectual lineage, in terms of how you do the work of theology. So it's kind of a strange, uh, a strange field in that way. And I, I guess what I'll say is I've never quite fit in anywhere that I've gone. Um, I grew up in the baptist church and um, though my parents didn't identify as baptist they're now united methodist pastors i ended up at a university out in new brunswick canada for a while and then ended up back here in minnesota and went to saint thomas and i ended up doing my bachelor's degree here and and studied theology and then i did my master's degree here at um, the saint paul seminary school of divinity in systematic theology so within a catholic context and of course at the seminary within a particular kind of, of Catholic theological context that, that was, you know, really challenged me actually. Uh, so I, I, I feel like I never really though found a, a home intellectually. I ended up doing my, my PhD at Princeton Theological Seminary, which is a Presbyterian school. And I should also mention, I mentioned earlier that I uh, am a Mennonite minister. So a lot of different kind of communities of thought and traditions that I've kind of walked through and, and tried on and inhabited for times and then found myself moving in different directions. But I just wanna speak a bit to Princeton in particular. At, at Princeton, I studied uh, with three professors there that have been really important to me. My advisor, uh, Nancy Duff and Beverly Gaventa and James Kay, who was the Dean of, of, of the Seminary when I was there. They all studied under, um, or studied at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. They were there in the 70s and 80s, and it was a time of great creativity. Um, they all studied under James Cone, who is often called the father of black theology. Cone was also a major contributor to the body of thought that comes out of the black power movement in the United States in the late 1960s. So. I would say, sort of through their influence, Cohn uh, has been hugely formative on my own thinking. My teachers also, though, studied under a theologian named Paul Lehman. Uh, he was at the end of his career when, when they were his students. He was a generation or two older than Cohn. Lehman is a really interesting figure that not many people know about, but he, he sort of precedes liberation theology. He was one of the first theologians to begin formulating what he called a theology of revolution. He was very interested in an approach to theology that was not speculative, but instead what he would call contextual, and it kind of reminds me of what Stuart Hall calls the conjunctural. He was very interested in this idea that, that theology is to be a work of discernment of what God is doing in the world and in the world in a particular context, in a particular time and space. So he wrote this amazing book called The Transfiguration of Politics, and he has a whole chapter where he analyzes different revolutions of the 20th century. And he'll look at, so the Cuban Revolution is one of them that I, that I can remember, but he, he looks at them and he asks the question, where is God in this? Is, is God active? in revolutionary activity. And this was pretty controversial. So he did a lot of work in the, in the 40s and 50s around some of these issues. He had a big influence, actually international influence. Um, he influenced um, theologians in Brazil, Argentina, Cuba, South Korea, South Africa. And he was also a colleague of Cone's at Union Theological Seminary. So my teachers, I would say, were students of these two kind of major figures in 20th century theology, James Cohen and Paul Lehman, and I think they really embody kind of different dimensions of their thought. I mean, James Kay is, is a homiletician, which means he, he studies preaching, proclamation, and he's really interested in the practical act of preaching, and Nancy Duff, my advisor, studied medical ethics. So yeah, those are, those are, that's sort of my, I think, intellectual lineage. The next question uh, that I have here is, and I'll start with Kanishka, what are some of the contradictions, tensions, and convergences you see in your role as someone embedded in and identified with, in some way, a private educational institution? And how does that relate to your hopes for an egalitarian democratic society? Well, that is the, uh, that is the question, isn't it?
1: And... Um I'm so lucky to be the first person to address this question. (laughs) So, um, I mean, I I think knowledge knowledge production, which is what we do, is a series of contradictions. I like to think this is something Gayatri Spivak once said about what we do in the humanities, uh, and since I teach in the humanities, she said, it's a non-coercive rearrangement of desires. So you know, one way to think of it is not not to get too grandiose about our project as intellectuals and teachers, but that we try to encourage our students to think critically about the world they live in. But I'm also realistic enough to know that it's not just up to them; it's not just up to us uh, as teachers. But we operate within a profit economy where everything is commodified. Social relations uh, become commercialized. Higher education is incredibly expensive. Most of our students leave university with enormous social and financial debts. So under the circumstances, being embedded in a private institution, however much good I hope I do, I'm also extremely uh, aware of the fact that I am participating in a profit economy and there are certain limitations to what I can do. So it's something I don't live comfortably with, but I try to interrogate and question in, in my writing, in my work, in my own teaching. Um, I don't think the contradictions can ever be overcome because capitalism doesn't lend itself to moral living because it is by nature an exploitative system. And so what we do is we try to undermine that as much as we can through critical thinking and critical work. But you know, in, in answer to your question, Rai, I would just say that it's it's an uneasy, unsettled existence. But I wouldn't do it unless I thought there was some measure of good coming out of it. But I do it with my eyes wide open to the realities of the world we live in.
2: What, what Kanishka said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I seriously, I think you articulated really well. Like for me, what I would want to raise was, which is like about access to this to you know, higher education because of the capitalist system. It's a very small sector that, that can be in these spaces. And I I mean, that feels like a huge contradiction to what I say I wanna be about in terms of equity. So I think, and I think particularly, you know, universities have been neoliberalized and we operate like corporations and I'm, I'm an employee it doesn't sit well in that because I don't I don't believe that corporations are the engine of transformation that we need. I think the other thing I would maybe add is just and this actually speaks to something Ryan and I talked about this weekend was like how you know we we teach ideas and some content some history in our classes and maybe some approaches for how to engage but I, I really wrestle with the question like is thinking and reading and teaching enough in terms of transformation. You told a story about a friend of yours who said like, what else are you gonna do? What am I gonna do about what I see in the world? And is like thinking and, t- and, and teaching and reading about it enough? And I, I wrestle with that a lot. And um, what am I gonna do about it? And what am I gonna encourage those in my collective and those that are learning with me to also do about it so we can do something together?
3: Um, yeah, this is, it's a really hard question. Um, and you guys have done so well in answering the question. I I think I, I would start off by saying a couple of things. First, I've had a lot of jobs in my life. I mean, I have, uh, I've worked at a convenience store, you know, in retail. I worked for, I worked the sort of blue collar work at a tank bottom reclamation facility when I was a graduate student. And by far, this is the best job I've ever had in my life. I mean, with, Without a doubt, it's the best job I've ever had. And when I first started working at St. Thomas, which is the only job that I've ever had out, out of graduate school, my first sort of thinking was, this is amazing. Like, I'm going to get paid to just, what, sit in my office? Like, the first semester, there was a lot of just sitting in my office going, like, "What? what do I do now, you know? But over time, I think, you know, despite that feeling that I had, I've come to realize that I am... Uh, still a worker and that, um, I, I, I still have that same relationship to the institution that I'm a part of. I'm a worker and they want my labor and that's what I get paid for. And so I try to remember that, to keep that in mind. I think in academia, we can have the tendency to sort of see ourselves above other kinds of workers or as different from other kinds of workers. And I think, uh, we should be honest with ourselves and sort of understand that the, uh, relationship between ourselves and, and the institution is, is very much the same as it would be if you were working for any other organization. And so that's a, a, a difficulty. And I think when you are a part of something that, that you also feel like doesn't have your interest in mind all of the time, that's going to create a kind of these antagonisms and these sort of difficulties and these um, sort of moments of tension, And that I think is a sort of feature of the work that we do. So I think for me, you know, like one of the biggest kinds of things to overcome and keep in mind is as much as I think that what I'm doing is important, I also have to keep in mind that the ways what I'm doing and what the things that I see my students going through, the things that I see them happening, achieving, all those sorts of things, um, the ways that those are also a part of something that... I have a lot of problems with and that I I hold a lot of critiques of. So in some ways what I'm saying is very much in line with what my two friends have said before me. But I also do want to um, emphasize what I said at first is like, if I had to do the kind of work where it is about trying to get people to realize something, trying to get students to think about what do we do next, you know, to see your world, to see it the way that it actually is, rather than the way people would want you to see it. This is the place that I would like to do that, I think. And maybe there are other ways to do it. And I think about that all the time. But again, like I'm a, I'm a worker and I am sort of implicated in this system, which doesn't allow me to just be like, Hey guys, I mean, how many times have we thought, let's go start our own college. (laughs) And then it always comes down to like, who has a million (laughs) dollars to do that with or something like that. Right. So um, so that's always a sort of a difficulty, a contradiction of experience. I, I feel like the good thing that we're doing, um, when I'm sitting in this very office, we're recording right now with some student you feel like this amazing thing has happened intellectually in the student's, um, experience. And then you also know that they have to go out and get a job, right? Like that's the most important thing is like, you could be like, Hey this student had this amazing moment or whatever, but did they get a job when they graduated? <laughs> like that's the the emphasis. And, 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 you know, I understand that. Right. So that's always something that I struggle with. I think.
0: Yeah. Those things are real. I mean, I, I think I feel similarly on the one hand, oftentimes I feel just grateful to be doing something that I love to do. And uh, which is to think mm-hmm. and to read and to share and to listen to others and to Yeah, to research and teach. So, and I think I am invested in, and maybe this is an old fashioned idea, but I think I am invested in this idea that the university can become a site of critical inquiry, I guess. And I hope that, I hope that it is. I hope that my classroom is. I think for me, this involves a commitment though, to, to praxis, to, you know, I'm thinking about Paula Ferreira's term, how do you say it? Conscientization. And do how you say it in Portuguese. I'll give it to you. Uh, but yeah, I think so for me, I guess the it thought to be connected to praxis in the world, this idea that, that they can, it can help us move toward action and creating a more just world. Uh, but I don't think I'm naive to, to the challenges and contradictions. What does Fred Moten say? He says, uh, the only possible relationship to the university today is a criminal one. I kind of like that. It's a place to steal what one can. And perhaps there is a way for one to be in but not of the university. So I guess I, I try to live into that I'm with the
1: brother to the university. I'll steal and there I will steal, (laughs) I believe is what Shakespeare said.
0: So I think for this, for this last question, and I think this will be kind of by way of, of introducing folks to, to what this podcast will be about. But I think for this last question. I want us to think about, you know, what do we each see? And I think this, this connects up with our research and teaching, right? Because our research and teaching is so connected to what's going on in the world around us, right? Where we're feeling tugged, where we're feeling pulled, you know, and, and trying to understand the world around us. So I think the question that I have for you, for you all right now is what do you think are some of the most pressing issues that we must confront in our world today, in our communities now, I realize this could be several episodes long, but let's try to answer this question, this question briefly. Maybe it can give you some sense about what it is that we're going to be kind of focused on in this podcast. So why don't we begin with you, Todd? What, what do you think are some of the most pressing issues and what, what would you like <laughs> to talk about
3: together in this space? Um moving forward well, I mean, obviously i won't i won't say them all so need <laughs> some for everybody else but i mean i, mean, I the know the, the royals the royals are <laughs>
0: and the kansas city royals you know are struggling right now so that might that's be not one one. Of them. No, that's not okay. that's not
3: one of them um you know like the, the so it, it for the audience i mean this this show is coming out of a collaboration or a kind of coming together of the four of us that's been taking place over more than a year now And the things that we have been reading together and talking about together have to do with things like, you know, mass incarceration, wealth inequality, I mean, things like that. And I think what I have heard from from my colleagues here, just in some of the answers to the questions they have given already, is that we can name a lot of sort of individual economic, social, political realities that the reason why we can all sit in a room and talk about them is we see them as being interconnected, right? We see them as being part of sort of one thing that we need to work towards transforming. Um, is there a name for it? Is there, you know, like, can you put your finger on where you begin? I'm not sure I'm the person to answer that. Um, but I think anybody who is sort of looking at the world right now and is analyzing it right now, And is looking at, you know, the sort of conditions that we live in right now, not just in the United States, but around the world, um, has to sort of come to the conclusion that this is not where we would want to be. This is not the world that we would like to live in, which is not the same thing as saying that there are not good things about the world, because I know someone will come and say, like, what, you ate the whatever. no. This is not the same thing as saying that there are not good things about living. There are not good things about our lives. There are not good things that we share with each other. But the conditions that many of us live, in fact, all of us live, and and the problem is that many of us aren't aware or conscious of those issues such that we understand our lives to be sort of perfect when they're not, when they are dependent upon the exploitation of other people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That seems to be one of the things that connects all of the work that we do, all of our ways of thinking about the world and the conversations that we've had. So, I mean, for me, that's a, it's a bit of a cop-out, but it's a, it's, it's, that's the way I would answer the question. I think.
2: If I'm being real, I think that the pressing issue on my heart right now in the middle of the summer is climate, the climate crisis. And I mean, this is, you know, we have, we have hazy air, poor air qualities because of wildfires. We have, We have drought, we have water restrictions, water's being lifted, you know, five billion gallons of water has been lifted off the water table in Northern Minnesota for the Enbridge Corporation to drill line three. We have, I mean, we're, the climate crisis is here. We have extreme heat, It's, it's, it's at the doorstep. And I think this is not an area that I have done any scholarship in really, but it is, it feels really, really urgent and pressing. And it links to a lot of things that we have talked about as a group, I think settler colonialism, racial capitalism and movement work, because ultimately to like take this reality that we're in right now, we are going to need a diverse breadth of tactics and strategies to navigate this. So it is something that I would love to, to learn more about, something I feel I'm learning in and I'm looking forward to hopefully talking more about it with y'all in this podcast.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's not much more to add here. I mean, unfortunately, this is a question that uh, is too easily answered in some ways. You can just uh, list uh, everything from uh, the criminal justice system to climate change to global imperialism. However, I think, what does that mean? You know, sometimes many of these things are abstractions to people. But, what is real is what Amy just said uh, yesterday, our eyes were burning, our throats were burning because the air quality uh, was horrifying, and yet it is the air quality that millions and billions of people in the world live with every day for us it 's an anomaly and, and because we are used to the privilege of having a relatively clean air, even though many people in this country die because of pollution. But the reality is that many people are living in terrible conditions and We tolerate it. So I think actually the biggest crisis is invisibility of the crisis, that we go about our daily lives without being aware precisely of how so many people in the world live. And in my teaching, I guess I would say to make that visible is part of what I try to do. Now, what comes of that, I I really don't have control of, but it's making that kind of injustice transparent and visible that I I try to contribute. That's in a very, very small way.
0: Yeah, I was I was reading one of my favorite thinkers, Angela Davis, recently, and this is from an old essay of hers, but this line stuck out to me. She writes Some of the most flagrant symptoms of social deterioration are acknowledged as serious problems only when they have assumed such epidemic proportions that they appear to defy solution. I think we're currently living in this kind of time. COVID and the climate crisis have functioned for many, I think, as a kind of X-ray into the world we're living in. A kind of revelation, actually. A world of massive inequality preserved and sustained by militarized border regimes that have been shaped and reshaped time and time again by colonialism and imperialism. And in the interest of really only a small part of the planet, we're living in the wake of devastation, really, I think. What Gerald Horne has called the apocalypse of colonialism. We see so clearly who has access to resources for life and who does not and the kinds of technologies engineered to extract resources and exploit the labor needed to extract those resources and also the kind of punishment that we see of the poor. There's this carceral logic you know, in our society, and the the terror of the cops, I think, is one of the more visible signs of this, actually. This is fundamentally a regime that is racialized and gendered, and we see how it destroys the lives of the most vulnerable people. You know, I followed the migrant caravan from Central America very closely in the summer of 2018. And I will never forget what happened to Roxana Hernandez, who was on the caravan. And actually, one of my friends knew her because she was also on the caravan that year. Roxana was one of many trans women on the caravan, fleeing violence in Honduras. And when she got to the border through a port of entry, she was detained and put in what's called an icebox, which is a very cold, dark room. She was 33 years old, and she died in the icebox. So oh, she was not given proper medical care. There are also children, of course, who die in the desert. We saw the other day Jeff Bezos's rocket ship, or whatever that was, that spaceship, go up into the air, but underneath, right on the ground below, there were children trying to get across the border. And there are children all over, this, all over the United States, in, in, in something like two dozen states, who are crammed in, in what are effectively concentration camps under U.S. custody. So I think the border is really all around us in this way. It's not something that's just between us and Mexico or between us and Canada. I think it's, it's, it's a really critical site. And especially right now in the context of the climate crisis. And I think for this podcast, the point is not just to name, oh, here are all the bad things happening in the world, right? But to imagine how we can act differently toward a new world. Right, how we can share in a different way of living and being, right? where we can move toward, say, a society where we care for one another and we care for the earth. And so I think that's a critical theme for this. It's not just a, a kind of, oh, critique the beast, right, because we're in its belly. But We're looking to seek after a different way of living. I don't know if that means we, we, we slay the beast or we are vomited out by the beast. I guess we'll have to see.
1: I think liberation. I mean, you know, what does liberation mean? And I think when you go back to uh, some of the questions that we've been pondering the last 40 minutes, ultimately the movement is towards a sort of liberation, which is not just liberation in terms of one's mind, but liberation in terms of freedom from exploitation, the ability to live with dignity to have affordable housing, health care, etc. This is what liberation is, and there has to be a way forward towards that. And I hope that the podcast is part of this conversation. It's not that we have all, all the answers, but we are struggling with some of these questions, and that we are trying to help each other find a way towards that liberation.
0: Thank you for listening to In the Belly of the Beast.